At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. Hello again, and thanks for being here for another Political Breakfast from WABE. I'm Lisa Ram with political strategist Brian Robinson and Theron Johnson. Hope you're doing well today. Doing great. The weather is beautiful in Georgia. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> hey, but it's Peace Week in Atlanta. Mayor Andre Dickens uh, says it's Peace Week here in Atlanta and uh, trying to get people to grapple with the violence that's taking place here. What do you think about that? Well, I think Mayor Dickens recognizes um, that this is a tremendous opportunity for him to lead on this issue at a time where uh, we're experiencing a lot of violence, not just in this city, but it's a lot of violence across the country. Um, But it's also dealing with the issue around poverty, Um, you know, at a time where we know that there's a wage gap here in in Atlanta and there's also income inequality. I think uh, the mayor understands that we rank very high in that in that regards. And so he's going to talk about that. But also, Lisa, he's going to talk about housing. Um, He's also going to talk about access to mental health care and even transportation. Uh, And and so he's going to figure out a way to weave all these things together uh, to find peace uh, or more peace in in the city. And I think lastly, you know, it's really interesting the timing of it. Uh, I was meeting with some regional leaders this week in Atlanta. And while everybody want to talk about transportation and education and jobs, which are all preeminent issues. But the one thing that's on people's mind right now is public safety. And so I think that the timing of this uh, with a, a, a great deal of passion and the willingness to listen just shows that Mayor Dickens is uh, displaying the leadership um, and with only been in office for you know roughly almost three months now. Yeah, and I think he's using it as a platform to show people Atlanta is not alone. Other cities are faced with this same problem. And it's real important for folks here to know that. Yeah, I don't know how much of a difference it's going to be making to tell people not to shoot each other when they have a disagreement, which I think, you know, Mayor Bottoms actually said at some juncture. But what I want to give Dickens credit for is using the bully pulpit that he has to talk to the city and the region about the issue that they're talking about in their communities. And, you know, being involved, showing uh, compassion and interest in, in this issue, that is a change over what we have seen in, in recent years, and I give him credit for that. I still think he's got to continue to show muscle when it comes to dealing with the criminal justice side of it, taking a tough stand on crime. And there are numerous ways to do it. The opening the Buckhead precinct was one of the ways. He's got to keep showing that he's interested on that public safety side as well. I don't have an idea for him, but that's, that's what he needs to do because – One thing Theron and I were talking about late last week was the Buckhead City movement, which is paused in the General Assembly for now. Not killed, paused. I think it's dead. And it very well could be dead. I don't think Speaker Ralston wants to deal with this, right? Dead, dead, dead. You know, 
and I and we know Duncan doesn't Lieutenant Governor Duncan doesn't want to to deal with it. But what would revive it? And that would be some big explosive. Not Bill White. Right? <laughs> uh, no, no. <laughs> be be so careful, big, Lisa. He will he will attack you. At uh, our upcoming guest, uh, he's he's a brown brother. I'm a black brother. Uh, he's called both of us racist. So, Lisa, I don't want <laughs> he's him. He's welcome to, to come on. All right. Bill White, we we extend oh, the invitation right now. Right he will, he won't come on because he'll, he'll he'll say I called him a racist. But we, I would love to have no, him. No, no, he'll come on. He he'll come on. All right, let's, bring let's, bring let's, him let's, on. I would love somebody. to talk to him. I remind him I live in Buckhead. Welcome him to the city. He's only been here for like two months, but you know, welcome. <laughs> that's something you can bring up when we have him on the show. You know, but if we have some big dramatic violent crime event in Buckhead that gets a lot of media attention. I think that puts that Buckhead City stuff back on the rails. Now, I think Andre and I think people who are anti-Buckhead City need to stay on high alert, need to continue messaging on this, which are, as Darren uh, referred to our next guest, as he, as he has been doing, speaking out on this issue. They've got to stay engaged because it's not dead until day 40 and events could overtake the politics where they stand now. Yeah, but Lisa, if you can give me a second, you know, I, I want to push back on that. And I've heard a lot of people say that. And, and I don't necessarily disagree with um, Brian that um, not if, but when a unfortunate uh, incident happens in Buckhead that we're going to see this group of people, not all, but uh, a majority, uh, I'm sorry, a minority of people, because majority of people in Buckhead want to stay in the city of Atlanta. Polling has shown that. But you know, we shouldn't we shouldn't put this amount of pressure on the mayor. Let me just go ahead and say this. Yes, Brian, there will be another tragic incident that happens in Buckhead and it may happen before April 4th. But what I wanted to say, and I took and I said this to the mayor directly, and I've said this to him on his podcast, he's gotta be careful because he can't just get totally just focused on Buckhead. We're having shootings and murders all across the city. And so what happens on the south side if they decide all of a sudden, you know, once we have a, a break in or a murder or something, we want to go, you know, DNX from the city. And so I do think we shouldn't sort of set that expectation on the show that, oh, you know, when something happens in Buckhead, all the crowds will get upset again. Then the mayor's going to have to, you know, uh, focus on them trying to DNX from the city or the legislature is going to bring the bill back up. I'm here to say that something is going to happen. It's just a. Unfortunately, it's just the, the world that we live in now. But I don't, I don't. I just don't think that's fair to the other citizens in our city who are not complaining, who are not taking their ball uh, away from the basketball court and saying, "Hey, I don't want to play with you anymore. I'm just going to, you know, end the game." They're they're persevering, they're enduring, they're working with this mayor, they're working with this police department. And so I just, I just want to kind of publicly say that I think we got to be very careful around the messaging on that. No, I don't disagree with you, and I think they are enduring and they are getting through it, but they are complaining too. I mean, crime isn't just in Buckhead. It's all over the place. And it's not just in the other parts of Atlanta. It's across the region. And I think that uh, Mayor Dickens can address crime in a way that goes far beyond Buckhead. I think the message needs to be an all of Atlanta message on crime that I, I see you. I'm going to protect you. I think you have a legitimate reason to be scared and angry. And I got your back. And I don't think that's just a Buckhead message. Well, another uh, topic, as as you well know, that's, uh, I don't know, it's fostered a lot of passion on all sides uh, of the spectrum there. Um, race, how it's taught in the classroom, and uh, this theory called critical race theory uh, and how it factors into the discussion when it comes to education here in Georgia. We're going to continue our 
conversation, part two, from when we started last week after the break. Last week's guest was Representative Will Wade from Dawsonville, who has a bill in you know the legislature uh, that would allow parents to vet concerns about how race and politics are reaching classrooms, right? Our guest uh, today is Jason Estevez, former board chair and at large representative on the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education. Uh, he heard the conversation and it piqued his interest as well. So we're going to hear from him when we come back. Support for WABE comes from Capital Good Fund, introducing Georgia Bright Solar Lease Program, a new rooftop solar initiative designed to create pathways to equitable and inclusive solar, sustainability, and monthly savings for Georgians. Learn more at georgiabright.org. You love free. And at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. We want to welcome you back to Political Breakfast, and I billed it as part two of our conversation last week. Uh, We talked about critical race theory. A lot of people are so tired of that discussion. Uh, Some people even charge that the media keeps it out there and, and keeps the conversation going. But it seems to be an important one to a lot of people, and one of those being Jason Estevez, who is the former board chair of Atlanta Public Schools, who has invested a lot in our children and and has a lot to say. So uh, we want to welcome you to Political Breakfast and into this this, uh, tenuous conversation today. Thank you so much for having me, Lisa. Look forward to having this discussion. I'm glad to have you, Jason. Jason and I are old friends. We are fellow members of the 2015 class of Leadership Georgia, which, which people say was the best class ever. It is the best class ever. <laughs> and and good to be with you, Brian, and, and of course, a uh, good friend, Theron Johnson, as well, uh, particularly talking about uh, this important topic. Lisa, it keeps coming up because Republicans keep bringing it up. And we've seen... Uh, Theron has said yeah. that over and over again. Yes. <laughs> he has. That, uh, legislators have introduced, have dropped more bills on education this year than in any other year uh, in the past at least decade that I've been paying attention to Georgia politics. And there's one reason for that. It's the fact that Republicans saw how well it worked uh, to bring up these issues in Virginia. Uh, They've seen it work on the local level in Houston, Texas, where I have friends uh, on the political scene there uh, that uh, said these issues were uh, were important in their recent local election. And they're trying to bring it up in Georgia. And I think that Democrats in particular can't ignore this topic because it does resonate with some folks. And because of that, we have to state our case. And I tell people all the time that it goes beyond saying that CRT, critical race theory, is not taught in our classrooms, which is absolutely true. The first time, and I was raised in Georgia, the first time that I took critical race theory, it was at Emory Law School, second year law student. It was an elective. I chose to take it. Um, it is not offered in any K through 12 public school in this state. So why then is it a part of the dialogue? Why is it creeping in there? You know, I got some emails last week. Uh, I asked Representative Wade to, dis- 
you know, to define critical race theory, you know, how he saw it. And and he didn't. And and they were pretty upset that we were having this whole conversation <laughs> without his definition of what it really is. So why is it factoring into, into um, K through 12, first of all? And then how do you define it? Well, one, it's a buzzword that they're using. They know it captures a lot of people's attention. Um, and at the end of the day, they're not talking about the critical race theory that so many of us know, which which is the study of how laws impact um, everyday individuals and how those laws are founded on racism. And they have a systemic impact on uh, people each and every day. Um, That's my short definition of it. But that's not what many of the legislators down at the Capitol define it as. Uh, Many of those folks are are looking to to limit uh, diversity inclusion efforts is, is the real motivation behind uh, some of the uh, some of the efforts they they even want to include social emotional learning right with this talk about making people feel bad uh, in many of our schools we're talking about uh, developing the whole child and and making sure that kids are in tune with their feelings uh, so there are legislators down at the capitol that also want to stop schools from doing that uh, at the end of the day there's an overarching effort to spotlight every single discussion that can happen in a school building that is not strictly academic. And that's really what they're targeting. The problem with that is, is that when you look at school districts across the state, uh, there are so many issues that impact our students, both inside and outside the classroom. And by, by limiting those discussions to what is in our books, uh, what we're doing is we're actually limiting the potential of our students to learn and our teachers to teach, uh, which at the end of the day, all these bills, that's all it does. is It's really limiting our teachers' ability and it's limiting the potential of our students. You know, when we had Representative Wade on last week, I thought he gave a very nuanced, very in-depth view on it and explained what he was trying to do very well. And also talked about his efforts to work with members of the Black Caucus to alleviate some of their concerns about this legislation. One thing that I can't get through is that Democrats keep saying this isn't being taught. This is a made up issue. Why not address the issue, which is Republicans are saying that there is some effort on the left, which is very believable because we know the left controls curriculum. They control academia uh, top to bottom. We know that everybody there's no, no, not any serious disagreement on that. Why not say I disagree? With the idea that America is fundamentally racist, and that is the defining uh, framework of this country, and I disagree with telling kids or, you know, even college students that some of you are oppressors and some of you are oppressed. Why, Why can't Democrats just say, I don't believe that. I don't think that should be taught. I know some lefty thinks that. That's not American, and we're going to divide this country, and we are going to divide children against each other if we're teaching them those divisive concepts. Because it's not being taught. <laughs> because it's not being discussed. Um, if if it were something that was in our classrooms, then then sure, there, there should be a discussion about that and a debate about that. Uh, but it's just not something that that is coming up in our classrooms. Now, what we have talked about um, is the fact that uh, while 
there you may believe that America is not a, a racist country. Uh, you can certainly agree that there are systemic issues that are based in race. And because of that, uh, there are efforts around equity. Uh, that is a is another buzzword that's used a lot. Uh, but at the end of the day, it means how do we fill those gaps that are inherent in our system uh, to ensure that everyone has the opportunity to thrive? And, and that discourse is what's being attacked uh, by by these bills. Brian, I totally agree with you. If, if, if we were talking about getting in classrooms and teachers talking about how white kids are racist and and black kids are, are victims of that racism, then that's a whole different conversation that 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 we should be having. But at the end of the day, what what these bills are aimed at, and we're seeing real evidence of this at the local level, what these bills are aimed at is shutting down the conversation about filling gaps as a whole. And we saw that in Cherokee County last year when this debate first arose. Cherokee County Superintendent started an initiative uh, that was focused on diversity, was focused on equity, because there's a diversifying Cherokee County. And he wanted to make sure that black and brown kids uh, were receiving a quality education. So he hired an equity officer. It was a big initiative. And then the CRT. So is that what is that what sparked it here in Georgia? What what? How did all of this start? Well, here? you know, it, I, I don't know whether that sparked it. But what I can tell you is uh, when this debate became a national debate, uh, Cherokee County does not have a chief equity officer today. And the chief equity officer that they hired uh, was forced to resign before she even started. Uh, so that that's, an, that's a real impact of these types of, of manufactured debates in, in, in local politics. Not only that, you can come closer into, into town, Cobb County. Cobb County last year parted ways with with their partnership with the Anti-Defamation League. No Place for Hate. Now, No Place for Hate started in the 90s. So if you went to school in the 90s, uh, it was very likely, elementary and middle school, that you were part of the No Place for Hate, hate program, especially here in Georgia. Uh, even that, teaching anti-hate, anti-bias, is seen as this, this critical race theory uh, it has that stigma attached to it. And, and and what that means is that now in Cobb County, uh, when there's a anti-Semitic uh, incident, it, it's challenging for the principal, it's challenging for the teachers to then address it. Because if you kick no place for hate out of, of, of the schools, then that means that you really can't talk about uh, those issues of, of hate. Uh, so it, it's this manufactured debate is really having an impact at the local level uh, that I think is, um, I think, un unintended, but it's real. Yeah, it's, it's Theron's turn. I'll, I'll, I'll hand it over to him. But I do want to come back to what Jason was saying there because I want to explain the conservative viewpoint on what he's talking about. 
Well, Jason, first of all, thanks for for being on the show today. And and thank you, Lisa, for having the part two, because I also received emails and text messages from a lot of my friends, not just from the left, Brian, but a lot of folks on the right uh, sort of engaged in this conversation that we had uh, last week. And so, Lisa, thank you, because that's the reason why this podcast is is here. Jason, I want to I want to just kind of jump in. I got a bunch of questions I want to ask you, but I'll do my best to to ask this question and, and, you know, try to get you to touch on a few points. Uh, the first question is, the first part of my question is, you know, with, with the critical teacher and school staff in crisis that our state is facing, and I know you know this firsthand for being on the school board at Atlanta Public Schools, um, how do you see these bills going through the state legislature having a chilling effect on aspiring educators? And then also, how do you think it will affect our ability? And I mean, because we're all in this together, Right. Uh, to understand the darker parts of American history, but also protecting teachers and giving them the uh, ability to to teach that part of history, which is there, but without them feeling like they will actually be uh, targeted and, and fired. Yeah, Theron, I think that's, you're bringing up two great points. Um, I'll tell you that teaching, I taught middle school social studies uh, in Houston, Texas, right out of college. And I've been an attorney. I've been on the school board. Teaching was the top, toughest job I've ever had. It is an incredibly difficult job. And I want to shout out all of our teachers that, that listen to this podcast and that work each and every day in our classrooms because uh, they are doing the work. Uh, they are doing an amazing job in a very challenging environment. And our teachers were already challenged prior to the pandemic. And, and I want to make that clear. The job of being in education during that time uh, was already tough. They then had to be in the debate around COVID-19 protocols and masks and reopening schools. And uh, at first, teachers were hailed as heroes, and then they were hailed as uh, being uh, scared of returning back to to classrooms. Uh, And now we've moved from the COVID debate, we're moving from the COVID COVID debate to now teachers having to worry about uh, what they're teaching and talking about in classrooms to the point where some of these bills penalize teachers uh, at an individual level for discussions that they're having or at a district level, penalizing, financially penalizing the, the districts for something a teacher does. And I can tell you that teachers are tired and COVID was already difficult enough. And we were already losing teachers because of that. And when I say we, I mean the entire education uh, industry as, as a whole across the country was losing teachers. But what this debate has done is, is exacerbated uh, that, that shortage of teachers, of talent uh, coming into the classrooms and and when you talk about, when you, when you think about that talent pipeline, these are likely to be folks who want to make a difference in their community. Uh, they've seen uh, young people who, who they want to impact and change the, their trajectory. Uh, and what this debate has done is discourage them because, like I said before, at the end of the day, what these bills do is, is silence and hamstring teachers. Uh, it silences 
students. So if I, as a social studies teacher, can't speak about public policy, which is literally what one of the bills says, then, then what am I doing in the classroom? How am I supposed to help shape the lives of young people? Uh, I'll tell you that in Atlanta Public Schools, we passed a policy, and when I say I can't even take credit for it because it happened 30 years before I was on the board, but they passed a policy at the time uh, called the Controversial Issues Policy, uh, which allows teachers and students to study controversial issues. That's a very vague topic or very vague term. I don't know. It's not defined, right? But it protects students and teachers to talk about the issues that make you feel a little uncomfortable, right? To study it uh, and, and do so in an age appropriate, right? Has to be age appropriate, uh, respectful manner. Uh, and that is the academic setting that so many of us uh, are used to. And that is under attack uh, by the legislature and by what we're seeing from Republicans across the country. I can say yeah, Republicans will find it very rich to hear about, you know, people who are uh, liberals in the classroom being silenced because it is being silenced that I think dr drives a lot of this for conservatives. You know, if a teacher wore a uh, hope and change T-shirt, would she, would she be sanctioned for that? No. If a teacher wore a MAGA T-shirt, would she be sanctioned for that? Yeah. Probably there, there is a double standard and, and that is the, the framework in which we're working that conservatives are reacting against the curriculum is determined by the left. And the reason why there's a pushback on these DEI or these diversity officers, equity officers is what conservatives hear when they read about someone with that job, what they hear about are these stories of conservatives being silenced. And you're talking about getting hate out of the classroom. None of us are for hate in the classroom. But what ends up happening is hate is defined as having a viewpoint held by the majority of Republicans, whatever it may be. If a, if a student speaks out against, let's say, controversial issue, speaks out against affirmative action, is that hate? Is that hate speech? I can promise you in some school systems it would be treated that way, and that kid would be sanctioned for being a conservative. So that's why conservatives react the way they do to these things, because conservatives are the ones who are targeted by these structures. Well, conservative, they can just take all their kids out of schools then. Well, and that's happening, Theron. Yeah, yeah. And so, but, but <laughs> there's I been think a great Jason, migration to private schools. Yeah, but see, I think that's selfish. And I, and I think that's, I think that's privilege. Uh, I think it's selfish. I think it's privilege. And you know this, Brian. Look, you know, I opened up on this podcast. You know, I'm, I had a really big debate with my wife about where our son should go to school. But we are in a position as a black family, two entrepreneurs, to have the means to, to make the decision to send our child to a private school, right? Which you know this. <laughs> but the conversation I had with the person who runs that public school, I mean, that private school was a very conversation, a very deep conversation about I don't want my child who is a young black man going to school with a predominantly white set of children to be, um, you know, for him to feel like he's got to be sort of taken easy on. Like, I don't want him to feel any privilege. Right. And so I think what Jason just articulated, Brian, is that. What I think Republicans are doing here, Lisa, is that they're anti-public schools, they're anti-teacher, and they are literally using a, a education 
issue that's not even really an issue to basically tr- to try to win a political election because they're mad that they lost in 2020. And, and that's the only way I can sum it up. Yeah, and Jason, you kept referring to it as a manufactured debate. Shame on us for for uh, pouring into it still, right? Right. And I'll tell you that um, one of the issues that we're having is that, and I hate to bring it up, but it's true. A lot of decency, a lot of uh, respectful debate has kind of flown out the window <laughs> in the age Absolutely. of social media. I think we all agree here. Um, because, Brian, what you talked about, debating affirmative action, that is, we should debate that, right? That, that's, a, that's a debate that can be had. Um, but... When we talk- but I can tell you, I don't think conservative students are going to feel comfortable doing that in the classroom. When I taught at UGA, it was during the Hillary versus Trump election. And I can tell you, the Republicans in my class wouldn't say a word. They were scared to be outed um, in, in that environment. But when, when, but when Dr. Bullitt brought us in together, Brian, guess what I did? And I think this is what Jason is doing. There are sensible Democrats out here, right? Like, you know, I walk into, I walk into predominantly white rooms all the time. And when I went to that room with you, I talked about how, look, I'm a Democrat. I've worked with, you know, Republicans when we can work with them and I get it, right? So 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 we shouldn't be attacked because the conservatives who sit silent, they think they were all lefty liberals and progressives. And, and I love my brothers and sisters on the left. I, we need them. But, you know, I, I think they shouldn't be scared to speak up and speak out because people like Jason and I, we're, we're, we're ready for it. We're here for it. Let's have that debate. You know, one thing we discuss here sometimes is I'm always worried on this show because I mean, you know, like there and I'm, I run a business and getting canceled for saying something that is a firmly held principle of mine. It's something that I think about all the time. I know Theron has to think about the same thing. You know, he has to worry about how clients are going to react to things. We, we have to worry about those things. But one thing that is different, you know, with Theron and I used to go on CNN on Saturday mornings. They quit inviting us after COVID. But I, I would just get hate, hate all day on LinkedIn and Facebook from these strangers in California calling me uh, n- nasty names. And there was just no civility whatsoever. There was no tolerance for for my viewpoint. It's worn on people. Yes, yeah, civility has gone out the window. Jason, you are an advocate for children. What what has to happen here to make this right for our kids? Frankly, I think we just need to shut up and leave them alone. <laughs> and when I, and I, when I say them, <laughs> I, agree. I mean educators, Amen, uh, school districts. Uh, students, we need to leave them alone. I, and I've said this before COVID, before this whole debate. Uh, in this state, we have not given our educators room to breathe. Uh, if you if you look at what's happened, every few years there's a, a significant change uh, in direction, whether it's at the federal level, whether it's at the state level, uh, whether it's at the local level, and, and that is disruptive. Uh, to to public education, to education generally, and it, it inhibits progress. Uh, so what my wish for our students and teachers is that we, leadership at the state, federal, and local level, give them space to do the work. I think that they have many tools uh, in place, fund them, and give them the space to do their work. And, and I think that if we do that, 
Uh, and I'll, I'll tell you, Brian, uh, Brian's old boss, Governor Deal, did a lot of great work around public education. Uh, and if we actually gave public schools the space and the opportunity to let those initiatives work, uh, then I think we'd see a lot more progress than, w- than what we've seen. The problem is uh, at, at the Gold Dome, people go in every couple of years and try to try to change things. And and that's disruptive. And, and does that mean keeping parents out of the process a little, too? Because last week we spent a lot of time talking about House Bill 1084. That's, yeah. a, you know, Representative Wade's bill to to allow parents to vet concerns about how things are being taught. Do we kind of need them out? I'll tell you, parents are already in the process. And, and if, if they are not, then they have the opportunity with their principal, with their superintendent, with their school board, an elected school board that, that are elected uh, at, locally across the, across the state. Uh, there are opportunities already for parents to lodge their complaints. And, and Brian, I'll tell you. The good old fashioned old way. Fashion. <laughs> I've done it many and, times. The good old fashioned way. I'll tell you that uh, there are schools in some parts of APS that teach things differently than in other parts of the APS because parents have helped shape and mold uh, those topics and that curriculum. Uh, so that's already happening and it's already, and it can already happen. Uh, you should have been advising Terry McAuliffe. He may be governor of Virginia. <laughs> if he gave that answer instead of uh, parents have no role in public education. There, there, yeah. There, there's a lot of, issues there. Uh, <laughs> well, 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 stay tuned, Brian. Maybe one of these days we may see Jason on the uh, statewide ballot. Who yeah, knows? no, I, 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 I foresee that. One thing I want to ask, because, you know, Theron talked about you know, putting his kid in private school. There is a great migration to private school. I live in the cab, not in APS, yeah, but it's very similar decisions have been made by the school boards. I have seen a great loss of faith amongst parents over the last two years, a great amount of frustration by the, the, closings of schools and, and people's lives are thrown into chaos. They can't go to work. I mean, uh, we've been luckier than most because my kid's largely been in school, but when she's not, it is awful. And it is so disruptive. Can public schools rebuild the faith of those parents? I, I think they can. And I think they will. It'll take some time. And I'll tell you, so you're acknowledging that you're acknowledging the laws of faith. Oh, for sure. Look, just, yeah, I am someone who come fortunate to have uh, two incomes in my home, uh, relative, pretty good incomes at that. Uh, We have a lot of flexibility. We choose to send our kids to public school. If we wanted to, we could send our kids to private school with no problem, right? Uh, So I I fall in that demographic of parents that are choosing uh, private school over public school uh, because of their concerns. So I understand it. Uh, but I, I also sit in a seat where I see the other side and I see uh, parents who are concerned about sending their kids to school during COVID. Uh, I see teachers who are concerned about their, their well-being by teaching in a classroom with COVID. And one of the things that I repeatedly tell people about school systems is that you can do anything at one school. Right. A private school can do can, can can turn that ship quickly. But when you add in. Eighty five school sites across a city, the decisions become much more complicated and you have to take into account the bigger picture. 
And, and while APS is a school system uh, that has a fair percentage of people like the folks on this podcast, uh, the vast majority of our students and our teachers are, are not people with options who, who can do whatever they want. They are, they are people who are reliant on APS to make the right decision for their own well-being. And as a parent who has choices, I have to accept that. And if I don't, then I move on. My hope is that over time, uh, we will make decisions uh, that will bring those folks back into the fold. And I think it's going to take some time. Uh, but I think at the end of the day, there is no better option for your students, for the most part, than sending them to a public school. And Jason, this just in, uh, the Georgia Senate approves uh, Governor Kemp's Parent Bill of Rights at schools, and it opens the window uh, or makes it easier for parents to get copies of instructional materials. So where is that going to lead us? What what hole might me go down there? Because already teachers are complaining. It's time consuming to do that, and they don't have time. All you're right? doing is pissing teachers. Extra time. You know, in one hand, uh, Governor Kemp is saying, hey, I'm going to fulfill my promise for a $5,000 bonus. And on the other hand, I'm, uh, I'm going to make your job even harder, right? If you ask a teacher to write their lesson plan a year in advance, you're asking them for an impossible task because they haven't met the children that they're going to teach. They haven't uh, interacted with them and see where they are as, as a class. And teachers constantly have to adapt their, their lesson plans over time. So essentially what you're asking teachers to do is, is work, do busy work on something that by the end of the school year may look completely different. And, and they are already overworked. And they're already overworked. Yeah, and when you talk sure. about a party that, that claims to be about local control and efficiency and, and get government out the way, this seems like the exact opposite. You got Brian giggling. What are you giggling about over there, Brian? No, Jason sounds like the the Democratic uh, state Senate candidate that he is. So. <laughs> Jason, I want to go back to something you said earlier really quickly, Lisa, if you'll allow me to. Um, you are a social studies teacher. And my question is, do you feel that our current so- social studies curriculums in our state uh, teach a fully accurate picture of our state and country's history? Um, or do you think that sort of the version that's being taught is sort of watered down? Uh, a lot of people refer to Abraham Lincoln as the known great emancipator, right? But I remind people that he had a quote, uh, and we got to figure out, you know, how would be re- the reaction if this was taught in schools. And his quote was, I will say then that I am not nor ever have been in favor of bringing about in any way the social and political equality of white and black races. And and that's a quote directly from him, but he's known as this great, you know, emancipator. So so what do you think about the social studies curriculum that's being taught right now in our in our state curriculum? Uh I, I think that history as a whole is taught by or is dictated by those who are in power. And the curriculum uh has been crafted in a way that tells history uh, that is focused on the the perspective of white people who have been uh, largely represented, mostly represented in in our government uh, for since the beginning. Uh, there there is a lack of black history 
Native American history, Latino history, Asian history. And no, Brian, I'm not advocating to <laughs> expand all that. But <laughs> but I, I will tell you that um, our superintendent, Dr. Lisa Herring in Atlanta Public Schools, she's a Spelman graduate. She went to school in Macon, graduated high school uh, down there. And she said that she did not learn black history uh, in earnest until she went to Spelman College. And that is the story of so many um, black Americans that that go go through K through 12 education, not learning about their history and and learning about not necessarily a one sided view of history, but just. A, a very select uh, view on on our history as a whole, and because of that, I do think that there are more perspectives, there are more events, there are more uh, people that should be covered by our curriculum, and and my hope is that over time uh, we adapt that that curriculum to include more of those perspectives, not one that that shames one side or the other, but one that. Uh, includes other events, right? The, the the Tulsa massacre. So many people learned about that For like sure. ten years ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> or yesterday. Yeah, like, right. say, yeah last year. Yeah. 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 A lot of people don't know. <laughs> yeah, really. The hundred year anniversary was two years ago. I yeah. think that's when a lot of people heard about. Yeah, it. And, and and it's one of those things. Well, why isn't that taught? Right. Uh, so you know, get away from the, the 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 discourse of shaming people. It's not about shaming people. It's about something that happens, right? Um, so, Theron, to answer your question, I, I do think that it, it's a it's a view of history that it, that is very limited and that w- there is a lot of opportunity for us to expand it uh, that will certainly enrich our students that are black, white, brown, yellow, purple, green. <laughs> it's, it, mm-hmm. It'll expand a, a, a lot of horizons. Yeah, you know, I, I I hear you on a lot of stuff, particularly with with Black history, because Black history is is so integral to American history from from its very beginnings. I mean, we talk about the sixteen nineteen project. I have some problems with it, but what it does tell me is how African Americans have been part of building this country from the very beginning. And I I am all for teaching about that contribution, and I do agree. I think we all agree that that was overlooked and downplayed for a long time. You know, one thing that I always have a hard time wrapping my head around, I hear you on people not understanding or learning black history uh, in, in the past. It's what's what the reason why I have a hard time processing that is because I went to a, a private school, one of, one of those that came up in the you know, post-Brown era, right? So very conservative and probably a little backwards in the views back then when I was growing up. And we were taught black history. And we were taught, you know, about slavery and Jim Crow and not Tulsa, but but we you know we weren't shielded from the from the ugly from the bad, and so it, it's just hard for me to believe that it's not being taught anywhere. If it was taught in that school, I I don't know where it wouldn't it be taught. I think that um, in most schools, it is brushed over. I, I Brian, I think there there are certainly instances where where it is talked about. Um, where their brutality is 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 discussed, but I think as a whole, uh, it, it's certainly not something that that uh, social studies teachers spend a lot of time on. Uh, and 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 I'll tell you, there was a comment made earlier about 
liberals dictating curriculum and, and, and the direction, but just a small pushback on that, the state that drives what goes into, into books the most is Texas. Yeah. Cause they buy so many books. Yeah. <laughs> they buy so many books. Yeah. And, but, so, but so does California. And yes. But, but there oftentimes California has their own, <laughs> their own books made for them. Uh, but Texas really drives the direction of school books across the country for the rest of us. And that is a uh, board of education that is controlled by Republicans. Um, and there have been some controversial issues uh, where they have um, they've driven book publishers to just remove stuff because the, those publishers did not want to wade into uh, those political waters. And, and I think that um, it, it's something to consider when we're talking about which textbooks to use. And uh, now that we have the internet, you know, sh- should any one state have that much power, whether it's California or whether it's Texas, uh, to dictate what's being taught in our classrooms? Uh, but I just wanted to lay that observation out there because uh, those two states have a have an outsized influence on what's being taught uh, in states like Georgia. Theron, any uh, parting thoughts uh, to wrap up this all important conversation uh, that we're having today? No, I think the thing. Um, that I just want to say, uh, Lisa, is, is thank you for again allowing this this part two. Uh, I've I've learned so much uh, from listening to State Representative Will Wade, and of course listening to my good friend, um, school board member Jason Estevez. Um, so thank you, and Brian, thank you for uh, you know standing up for what you believe in and, and speaking for the people that uh, you are closest to. And and I think I did a good job of that as well. So you I did. think this was a really good conversation. Now, thank you, Jason, for coming on. I tell you, I I said. The same last week about Will, want to say it about you. You're not getting an intelligent conversation on this issue anywhere else. You're just not getting this conversation that we're having here on this issue where you're, you know, you're sitting here saying, no, nobody should be called an oppressor in, in the classroom. And Will Wade is saying, no, this isn't widespread. I mean, both people are admitting parts of what the other side says, and that's what we're about. And so thank you so much for coming on. Really have enjoyed it. And thanks for just for suggesting Jason there. And I, um, it's always good when you bring on friends of mine. Well, <laughs> and, 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 you know, it, it counts against and, and yours. Tackled- I, I enjoyed the conversation, you know. Thank you. Yeah, Jason Estevez, former board chair and at large representative on the Atlanta Public Schools Board of Education, um, an advocate for all children. Thank you so much for stopping by and sharing your thoughts. Uh, we hope to have you back. Brian Robinson is a Republican strategist, communications consultant, and former deputy chief of staff for Governor Nathan Deal. Theron Johnson is a Democratic strategist, public affairs and government consultant, and most recently a senior advisor to the Biden Georgia campaign. Thanks for doing it again, guys. I'll see you next week. Have a good one. Have a great week. Thank you, guys. Thank you so much, Lisa. Ever wondered where to find the best dumplings in town? Curious about Atlanta's obsession with lemon pepper? Join us on Savory Stories, a new podcast as we uncover the untold tales behind Atlanta's culinary scene. From the roots of your favorite dishes to the creators that bring them to life, we're diving deep into the heart of the city's food culture. Listen to Savory Stories at wabe.org slash podcasts or wherever you listen to podcasts. W-A-B-E. 
Sounds Like ATL is a music documentary series that takes an in-depth look at the artists amplifying Atlanta's famed music community. Built around a desire to highlight Atlanta's diverse and world-renowned music scene, each episode features unforgettable, intimate musical performances by fresh new musical guests, each with exclusive interviews about the stories behind their music. Listen to Sounds Like ATL Saturday evenings at 7 on WABE and WABE.org.